Heavenly Father, God, thank you, Lord, so much for this opportunity to come together to worship you through the study of your word. Would you open our eyes and our hearts and our ears that we might hear what it is you have to say to us today and that we might be changed by it. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. The title of our message today is, What Does the Lord Require? And it comes from our reading in Deuteronomy chapter 10, beginning in verse 12. So now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? Only to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his decrees that I am commanding you today for your own well-being. That's all, guys, by the way, just so you know. What does the Lord require of you? Just fear God, walk in all of his ways, not some. Uh, Love God, serve the Lord your God with everything you've got, and keep all of his commands. Got it? So cool. It's very easy to sum up. Two verses. Although heaven and the heaven of heavens belong to the Lord your God, the earth with all that is in it, yet the Lord set his heart in love on your ancestors alone and chose you, their descendants after them, out of all the peoples as it is today. Circumcise then the foreskin of your heart and do not be stubborn any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who is not partial and takes no bribe, who executes justice for the orphan and the widow, who loves the strangers, providing them with food and clothing. You shall also love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt." You shall fear the Lord your God, him alone you shall worship, to him you shall hold fast, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise, he is your God, who has done for you these great and awesome things that your own eyes have seen. That's the end of our reading. So what does the Lord require? What does the Lord your God require of you, of me, of us as a people? And what is it that God is emphasizing, not just in this session, section of Scripture, but throughout Deuteronomy? Well, right away, as we read that passage, we start to hear echoes of the, that which we've already studied, right? What we call the Shema, which Jesus also says is the number one commandment. The word Shema meaning hear or pay attention. And just that, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus says from Leviticus 19.18. So right there we hear that sort of like love God with everything, serve God with everything. So we hear that echo back from Deuteronomy and stretching through the scriptures. We hear an echo right at the very beginning when I say, what does the Lord require of you? Many of us who grew up in churches, we could probably already start to hear even some worship songs in our heads surrounding that verse in Micah 6, 8, Right? He has shown you, oh man, anybody know that song? What is good and what the Lord requires of thee, but to do justice, but to love mercy, but to walk humbly with your God. If you don't know the song, that's okay. It's like a probably Lutheran thing. So um, Micah 6, 8, right? It's very clear. What What does the Lord require of us? Like act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God. In that passage, we hear how God cares 
for the stranger, how God clothes and feeds and takes care of those who are vulnerable in our society, how we are to care for the stranger, the widow, and the orphan ourselves. And we hear right there, it echoes all the way throughout all of the scriptures, including into Jesus, right? I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in naked and you clothed me. Matthew 25, Jesus didn't just come out up with this. He did not come up with this just off the top of his head, right? He is quoting text. He's referencing deep-seated, beautiful ethics that are pushed throughout the book of Deuteronomy. And remember that when he teaches that, he says, for whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. Jesus also says in that same passage, whatever you didn't do, you did not do for me. And then we have passages like this In the book of Hebrews, don't forget to show hospitality to strangers because in doing so, some of you have entertained angels without knowing it. We have this passage stretching about not just love the stranger and remember that you were strangers in Egypt, but that when you entertain a stranger, you are bringing and welcoming in the divine into your life. And it's referencing this beautiful story that Pastor Mark's teaching on today with the kids about Abraham and Sarah welcoming the visitors in Genesis chapter 18. And Jesus' own brother, in the book of James, chapter 1, verses 27, says, Religion that's pure and faultless or undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. I always hear people try to grab that last part, and they're like, well, you know, you're supposed to keep yourself unstained or undefiled in the world, and they just sort of focus on that part. And I don't know if they've ever connected it with the fact that the way in which we do that is by caring for the people that the world pushes aside that we bring those that have been marginalized back to the center of our societies, of our family life, of our very theology. Because this is the kingdom that has been preached to us from the very beginning all the way back in the book of Moses, in these books of Moses and Deuteronomy. And this is very contrary to everything else we see and hear in the world. That we find right there in the beginning of Deuteronomy in chapter 10, we find that God is a God that will accept no bribe, that pays no attention to someone's status. In fact, the opposite is true. The thing that makes somebody the most vulnerable in society without the care and protection of a father figure or a husband, that person is the person that God is deeply concerned about. And God becomes their father, their protector, their husband in that world. This was not common in the ancient Near East. In the ancient Near East, kings were deified, right? And their power was pressed upon everyone else. Like, I am king, I am the God now, and you must bow down to me, to my whim, to do all of the things that I am asking you to do. It was not an equal relationship. It was not a relationship built on love, where God says here in Deuteronomy that God just loves us, that God saw about everything in the world and chose us simply because of God's love. In fact, this whole moment in Deuteronomy and all of God's commands are not really God-centered or king-centered. They're much more covenant-centered and love-centered. And God is the one who brings about that covenant and that love and invites us to participate. And I keep trying to figure out, how did we get here? Because this does not seem very man or human-made, right? In my experience, it is very much a human-toss-human-to-the-wolves sort of world. But here in our ancient text, pushing throughout the entire narrative, we have verses like this from Psalm 68. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Where did we come up with this? Perhaps... Of course, we didn't come up with it at all, and it's 
God's self, inviting us into something quite beautiful and wonderful, something different than everything else that we've seen or heard or understood in this world. I was listening to a podcast recently with Malcolm Gladwell, and it was called Chutzpah versus Chutzpah. And it was discussing in his revisionist history the difference between chutzpah, which is like, oh, that person has like a really good, um, anyone familiar with a little bit of Yiddish? Like um, they were, they had some strength. It was like took a lot of chutzpah and they did that hard thing and, they, and it sort of commended for it. And in Israel, chutzpah, it can also almost be more like an offense. Like, wow, that I'm offended by the fact that you asked that thing or somebody pushed into a different way. And as they're discussing this chutzpah versus chutzpah, they talk about how in different societies and cultures, because he's talking with an Israeli, and I thought this was all very fascinating because I've lived in Israel for a bit and it was recognizable to me, that there's sometimes conversations that are uncomfortable because in Israel they have a low power distance culture versus a high power distance culture. A low power distance culture, it's this sort of theory about how cultures work, and it's based on Gert Hofstede's cultural dimensions theory on power distance. And he talks about how power distance is the degree to which less powerful members of institutions and organizations accept that power is distributed unequally. Are we willing to say, hey, we're totally fine with the fact that somebody is in a hierarchical, and we're just like that position, and that's just the way it is? So in a high power distance culture, power inequality is pronounced, it's common, and people accept it without question. And in low power distance cultures, there's lower levels of inequality, and we are less willing to accept unequal power distribution. So they were talking about this because in that conversation of chutzpah and chutzpah, it's sort of a discussion about what are you willing to speak up about? When are you willing to have that very direct conversation? And my experience in Israel is people are very willing to have very direct conversations with you and tell you what they think on regular business, like just, hi, how are you? Who did you vote for? Let me tell you what I think about that. How much do you make a year? Let me tell you what I think about that, right? Just very low power distance in that conversation. And it's kind of wonderful because you get to talk about what you need and you get to have this conversation, right? Well, this reality can be found in cultures and nations and different forms of governments and in companies. I'm sure some of us have worked in companies or institutions where there's been very high power distance, where it was sort of like whatever that person said, that was the way that it went, like my road, you know, this road or the highway. Or there were low power distance where the organizations are more flat and you were more, you were invited to participate in the conversation and you were less willing to accept inequality. There are families that function like this, right? The head of the household says it, or the man of God says it, and that settles it, and we're not going to have a debate or discussion about it. Anybody familiar with any of these sort of, right? Okay. So it struck me upon listening to this podcast that the Bible, specifically God, in God's creation of this beautiful story of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, is creating a low-power distance culture. And we know this because right in the beginning of Genesis, Abraham is permitted to talk back to God very quickly. After the three visitors come and visit, God pulls Abraham aside and says, by the way, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham's like, wait, 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 let's have a conversation about this. That's a low power distance cultural dynamic, right? God says, these people are awful. I'm going to destroy them because of how wicked they are. And Abram has 
the chutzpah and the chutzpah, right, to go to the creator of the universe and say, your need for divine justice over that wickedness needs to be argued with. And I'm going to argue with you for the sake of 50, for the sake of 40, for the sake of 25, for the sake of 10. Will you still keep that city alive? And you can imagine how that conversation maybe would have gone. Would you have felt comfortable saying to God, hey, I don't like that, and I want you to change your mind? Were you raised in a faith tradition or church where you were permitted to say to the pastor, I don't like that, I don't want to do that, I disagree, I don't think the Bible says that, I don't think Jesus says that, I'm not going to do that. Anybody here raised in that kind of church culture? I think most of us have had more experiences with high power distance cultures, particularly in the church, than not. But the Bible invites us. God is somehow creating and providing almost a democratization of the conversation where we are invited in a much more low power distance culture. Even the very times when we are horrific to God, when we've done terrible things, those covenant, when we were, you guys remember this Mount Sinai thing, when we destroyed the covenant, like we're unfaithful to God, the very night the covenant was made, God still chooses to re-engage with us and not just destroy us, right? But still chooses to re-engage and try to re-covenant with us in those moments. When I was thinking about this further, I was thinking about how Moses, too, intercedes on behalf of Israel when God says to Moses, step aside, Moses. These people are driving me crazy. I'm going to take them out, and I'll make you the one that I covenant with. And Moses is being cued by God to intercede again. He's like, let me, let me. And Moses is like, no, 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 no. Don't do it. What will they say about you in Egypt? When Solomon dedicates the temple, Solomon builds into the dedication a prayer that says, when we sin against you, because this is going to happen, when we forget, when we do all these horrible things, will you please, and he already intercedes on our behalf, please look back towards us, send rain, remember your covenant promise, and forgive. This is a very amazing thing. The creator of the universe, of everything that we've ever seen and known, of gravity itself, is encouraging the people of God to intercede, to argue, to engage in a relationship where there's some sort of more like democratization of the, that relationship with God. And I think even in the person, and even more so in the person of Jesus, we see Jesus then taking the lowest form. Wrapped up in human flesh, wrapped up in human flesh that is not perceived to have a a righteous birth, that starts from lowly stories, that has to flee in the middle of the night, an angry oppressor, so now without a home, refugees from that. And then as our story with Jesus continues on, we see that at the very beginning of Jesus' life in Luke, that as he goes and celebrates his first Passover, they call it, which is probably the first one he was old enough to have the sacrifice of the lamb himself, they are amazed at his many questions, and he's dialoguing and having conversation with the adults in the community, and they cannot believe this young boy, and, and the society is willing to hold that space. Where a young kid, I mean, yes, he's remarkable, he's Jesus, but still, nonetheless, can sit 
in the house of God and dialogue and have a conversation about the text. And we see throughout then the ministry of Jesus, where Jesus continues to take on the lowest part. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head, he says. There's no building we can go to today. There's no monument we go to today that says, oh, Jesus built that. He was, Jesus was here. We don't see that signature anywhere. And yet we're still talking, even though the power distance was so low, right? He makes himself nothing. He intercedes on our behalf in that great, beautiful tradition of Abraham and Moses and Solomon. Jesus himself intercedes on our behalf still today. And this continues to be, in my mind, miraculously celebrated in our book of Philippians. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interest, but to the interest of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself. Taking the form of a servant, being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death and even death on the cross. What I see pushing through this book of Deuteronomy and through the entire text is not just that God is closing that power distance between God's self and God's people, but that God is encouraging us to close the power distance between ourself and others. That we are to make the joy complete by being like Christ not considering others better than ourselves. I think that's why over 36 times in the Torah alone, we're told to love the stranger more than we're told to take care of holiness or Shabbat or anything else. We're to love and welcome in the stranger. Why? Because God is creating through the Israelites a community and a culture where the power distance is closed. And where those who are on the margins and who are most vulnerable are invited into the center of that community. Because that's what God has done for us. We are all in need of being invited into the center of that relationship with God. And we're invited, encouraged, commanded to do the same for others. By the way, the world recognizes the audacity and beauty of this way of life. It's shocked when it finds people who will bring in, humble themselves, bring in others close. Just this week, just yesterday, you guys, all over the news, I splashed, not about how Naomi Osaka won, but how she was kind in her winning. And how she brought Coco Graff up, right? Goff up to have a conversation and brought her into that moment of the interview on court. And everyone's amazed. They're like, oh my goodness, let's all talk about the fact that these two human beings who are playing a game of tennis, which I agree is very impressive, but it's, you know, it's game, that they can be kind to one another on the court afterwards. And I agree, it was beautiful sportsmanship. But this week there was also, you know, just this little boy that was kind to another little boy at school, and it's on CNN. We have to talk about how unusual it would be for one little boy to hold another little boy's hands and welcome him in as he's struggling on the first day of school. It hits CNN. 
We're so amazed at that low power distance. We're so amazed at the person who deserves to have the chance to be cruel or mean or self-congratulatory in the winning. When they choose instead to lift the other person up, the world's shocked. But this is the way of our God. This is the way of Jesus. This is the way of humility. So how do we do this? How do we make this way more common? Well, I think one of the first things God gives us is a chance to rehearse history. God is going to ask Israel regularly to remember. So that every spring we will rehearse the Passover. And every fall we'll rehearse living in temporary dwellings for Sukkot, right? And in fact, that's exactly what was happening in the first century with Jesus and his disciples in the upper room. When we talk about the Lord's Supper, they were rehearsing Passover. They were remembering what it was that God had done for them and how God had set them free. When we take communion, we're rehearsing that night too. We're remembering Passover. We're remembering what Jesus did with Jesus' disciples on that Passover meal for the Lord's Supper. And not only that, we're preparing for a kingdom to come where we see that the voices that have been marginalized and pushed aside are coming again and again and again to the center of our theology, of our way of life. Where when we look, whether we're the ones who are the ones, we're the ones who are the victims of inequality in our world, or whether we see the person next to us as we are in our own privilege who is having an experience of inequality and lack of justice. We're the ones that say, no, this is not the way of God. This is not the way it's to be, and we're going to not be satisfied with the inequality. We're going to demand that the power gap close. We rehearse that history of the kingdom that's to come. When we rehearse history, we remember, we remember who we are, we remember where we are from, and we remember where we're going. We remember who the king truly is, not the ones that are out power grabbing right now and trying to be worshipped or trying to be in charge or grab the most power. Wherever we are, we're remembering the one true king who laid down his life and took up his cross. We're remembering the kingdom that we're building here on earth is the one that we're aiming for in the world to come as well. Now, in this great work, you guys, optimism is required. It's not possible to be in the work of following God's commands, of loving God with everything you've got, of trying to see this beautiful world that God is creating through the incredible commands of Deuteronomy and throughout the rest of our text. We're not going to see that come to pass unless we have some optimism. Because for a very long time, we've been fighting. It feels like forever. But for some of us, this this fight is only just started. Kevin referred to it as white stamina recently. Where we feel like, well, we just started fighting and now nothing's changed. Right? We did all those vigils on the corner and those kids are still in jail. Those kids are still being tortured with separation and they're still experiencing psychological drama for the rest, trauma for the rest of their lives, right? But nothing changed, so I guess we'll just go back to numbing ourselves. But this fight, this is a fight that's been 
going since the beginning of time, and it's one that God invites us into. When God says, love me with everything you've got and follow all my commands, when God says, love the stranger, when God says, I myself care about the orphan and the widow and the stranger, and so you're to love the stranger too, these are things where we're constantly pushed into saying that that power distance needs to close more and more and more because it's the way of God. So we welcome the refugees. We demand equal pay. We demand racial justice. And we continue to see that this is going to be a long, hard fight. And that's why we, our news goes crazy when they see two sports, two athletes, you know, treat one another with respect. Or when they see one little kid hold another little kid's hand and help. We're like, oh, let's freak out about that because it is so rare. And yet it is the work that we are required to do. It is the work we're called to do. It's the work we're commanded to do. And aren't you glad Because it means that you and I, we have a God that has that type of relationship with us. Where our complaints with God are being brought to the middle of God's concern. Where God doesn't just brush us aside and say, I don't care how you feel. I don't care what you're experiencing in this daily life. Instead, God says, no, everyone matters. And in caring and commanding that everyone should matter, including those most vulnerable, God now creates a space where we can all go to God with our concerns. And with the concerns we have for one another. This takes a lot of optimism. It takes a lot of hope. It takes a lot of hard work. And it can be frustrating. And it can be discouraging at times. And that's why we need one another. And we need to know our history. I mean, just me standing here preaching to you, you know that not that long ago most seminaries wouldn't let women come in and even get a master's of divinity. That's not that long ago. That's in my lifetime. Things have changed. Don't despair. Continue to plant for justice. Continue to plant for caring for those who are marginalized on the outside. And God, guess what, you guys? God cares for you. God cares for me. God cares for us. And this beautiful kingdom, we can start to see tastes of it, can't we? We can believe that justice and goodness will prevail in the kingdom of Christ, in the economy of Christ. So last night, I'd just like to say, you know, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. This king we're talking about, this God that's inviting us into relationship, into covenant relationship, is a God not interested in wielding massive power over all of us. This is a God that loves us and wants to be in relationship with us and is demanding and encouraging and welcoming us to do the same for one another. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 15. Paul says these words to a church in Rome that's trying to work out all of its differences as the Jewish followers of Jesus and the Gentile followers of Jesus are trying to find space as the edicts of Rome who, that have been kicking out the Jews out of Rome are now being pushed aside and, and they're coming back together, these two differing communities with much shared but much different. He says, listen, come back together God is a blessing for both the Jews and the Gentiles in this community. And as you do this, as you pursue this reconciliation work, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
The last word I'd like to tell you today, I just believe that we're not in this on our own. This is not just through our own grit, brute force that we're going to try to become more agents of God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. This is through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we can lean in and ask for that. We can ask for God to continue to do this miracle that was unheard of and unseen anywhere else in the world where a God and king would reduce that power distance and invite us close. We can continue to do that together, laying down the power that we have and instead inviting one another closer in, bringing everybody to the table, making sure it's open for all by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? And now, as we've just talked about, we're going to continue to remember that this table is open to all, welcome for all. All are welcome here as we celebrate communion. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.